Okay, well, we'll start. <laughs> um, right, so we're going to talk about ultrafast optics today. The reason we talk about ultrafast in this class is um, that, for, well, for two reasons. One, and we already alluded to this uh, when we talked about care lens mode locking, is that um, some electro-optics are used to generate short laser pulses. But the other reason is that short laser pulses are efficient for nonlinear interactions because as the pulses get shorter for a given average power, you get higher peak intensities and more efficient conversion. So they're commonly used for, for uh, nonlinear processes. So we'll talk about this today. We'll probably talk about it some next time. And then um, the other topic that we have that I can talk about is uh, sort of how all of this stuff gets integrated into photonic circuits. And that will most likely be a very uh, sort of broad overview lecture. We won't have time to go into much calculations. And there's really no new physics. That's chapter 23 in the textbook. There's no new physics there. So, um, so I'll just present sort of an overview of that. I can do that, uh, I guess, next Monday. And then it looks like we'll probably have a review class on the last day of class. That seemed to be the not quite consensus, but most uh, most requested activity from the discussion forum. So that's what we plan to do. Um, today, I've, I will put up your last homework assignment. Your last homework assignment. <laughs> you thought this was it? We still have two weeks left. The last homework is a practice final exam. I will be happy to give you feedback. Yes. And if I'm doing the feedback, I might as well grade it. Okay, so um, yes, so that's where we're going. Um, okay, so today we will talk about ultrafast optics. I think there's probably more content in the slides than we'll have a chance to get to uh, during today and, and next, next time, so I may skip over a few things, but I'll talk a little bit about uh, how we describe ultrafast pulses. And ultrafast, it's a bit of a bit of an arbitrary term, but typically we're talking about pulses that are only a few optical cycles in duration. So really where the uh, amplitude profile of the pulse starts to change at a rate that's comparable to the optical cycles. Um, well, I've got some slides on generation of ultra-short laser pulses. If you have taken laser spectroscopy with me, you may recognize the slides. I just grabbed them from that, uh, my, my slides from that uh, class. So they're somewhat relevant, and I'll probably breeze over those and touch on the, the parts that are relevant, most relevant to this course. Um, and the other thing that's, that's kind of interesting is, is the way you use nonlinear optics to quantify the length of pulses. When you get the ultra-short pulses, where the pulse duration is faster than the response time of any detector that you could use to detect them, you can no longer just sort of map out the rise and fall of the pulse as it, as it energizes your detector. You have to use more sophisticated techniques to infer its length. Um, so I'd like to talk about that. Um, and if we have time, we'll talk about some different 
different mechanisms for uh, measuring ultra-fast pulses. Okay, so first, a little bit of description. What do we mean by a pulse? So generally, we've been dealing with plane waves, uh, at least temporarily, so constant frequency waves. So a field amplitude that is a function of time would just be sinusoidal, like this. And so now if we put a modulating envelope on that, we can describe the width of that envelope. And that envelope times this underlying carrier wave gives us this sort of uh, an optical train. Okay, so we will uh, describe the width of this pulse by the width of the envelope that modulates it. We'll call that tau. And there's different ways of defining what you mean by a pulse width, but probably the most common, the one we'll generally use, is the full width half max. So the full width half maximum, not of the field, but of the intensity. Since the intensity is what you m would measure, um, if this function a of t is the amplitude function, we have to square it to get something that's proportional to the intensity. So full width half max of a squared. Oftentimes, though, we don't talk just about the uh, time dependence of a pulse. We talk about its frequency content, particularly when we have ultra-fast pulses, um, where you have a very short time window. That means you have a very broad frequency spectrum of components that make up the pulse. So you can take the Fourier transform of this amplitude profile. For a Gaussian, what's the Fourier transform of a Gaussian? It's a Gaussian. Uh, you can take the Fourier transform of this. What's the Fourier transform of a sinusoidal function? It's a delta function. And if you have the product of two, two functions, then the Fourier transforms are the convolution of the two, which means the Fourier transform of this will be a Gaussian, the Fourier transform of a Gaussian, but it will be shifted by the frequency associated with that underlying function. So it will look like this. At some frequency here, which we define as our center frequency, that's the frequency of our underlying sinusoidal wave. That's where the spectral content of our pulse is centered. But there's a spectral width that comes from the Fourier transform of that amplitude profile. Okay, So we'll call that width delta f or I think in the textbook calls it delta nu, either way. It's the uh, width in frequency. If you see it as delta omega, then there's going to be a factor of 2 pi that relate the two. But again, we'll talk about this width as generally the full width half max of this intensity spectrum. So that intensity spectrum is proportional to the spectrum of the electric field transferred function squared. So if you calculate the Fourier transform of the electric field, you have to square that in order to get the, uh, the intensity, the spectral intensity. So what this is mapping out is what we call the spectral intensity. And physically, what that means is that 
um, at, we can draw a little more clearly. If you know that nu is the same thing as f, frequency. Frequency of the wave. So it just depends if you come from chemistry or physics. Oh, eta is the impedance of the material. Uh, so a square root of mu over epsilon. And it's not in your notes. I just put that in an hour or so ago, but uh, just cleaning up my notes that in order for these to truly be equal, we need these, this constant of proportionality. So, and by the way, this uh, took me back last time. There was a question about how we related the, what, the amplitude of the electric field to the intensity and the constant of proportionality there. I said, okay, well, the intensity is the square root of the point, or the time average of the pointing vector, and that was E cross H. And then we related H to B, and we related B to E. And that was kind of a roundabout way, and it didn't occur to me until later that um, the magnitude of the electric field is eta times H. Right? Electric field is units of volts per meter. H is units of amps per meter. And eta is an impedance. So this is volt, this is Ohm's law. Voltage equals impedance times current, V equals IR. So it's, it's the equivalent of Ohm's law. So we could have immediately just said um, H is E over eta. And the time average gave us a factor of 1 half. So a little more direct way of doing it. Um, OK, so what this spectral intensity tells us is that if you wanted to measure the total amount of intensity that would pass through a filter of bandwidth delta F, it would be the area under that curve. So I should draw it like this. So the total intensity in your beam, if you just take the entire beam, you put it on a photodetector, your photodetector has a flat frequency response, so it detects all frequencies with equal, equal weighting. Um, the total power that you measure divided by the area of your beam is your intensity, and that's the area under this entire spectral intensity. If your photodetector has a narrow bandwidth, narrower than the bandwidth of your light source, then you're not measuring the total intensity, only the weighted average of the intensity detected by your photodetector. If your light goes through a spectral filter, your filter bandwidth, delta F of the filter, has to be used to determine the limits of integration and the spectral intensity to see what the uh, total intensity you'd observe is. Okay. What's the difference? What's the difference in the what's the difference in this two? The first one was a uh, this one and this one? Yeah. 
Nothing. They're, yeah. the, they're the same. So, so I, I think this is also new to the notes. Uh, the spectral intensity, I of f, times df, is the optical intensity with the pass-through of filter of center frequency f and bandwidth df. I think this df is missing in the notes. So please add that in. So the units on spectral intensity, what would they be? MKS units. What are, well, first, what's intensity? Uh, watts per meter squared? Yes. So spectral intensity. So Well, so we just, you don't have to reduce the units. It would be watts per meter squared per hertz. Right. Yeah, yeah, you're right. I'm just, for the sake of everyone who's not, it's, it's easier to work one way than to work back from what you said. OK, so um, yeah, oftentimes the spectral intensity is given for a laser source. Um, <coughs> And because the width of this pulse comes from the width of the, uh, the time respect to the, the pulse width here, uh, that determines this spectral width due to the Fourier transform. For a Gaussian pulse, the relationship between tau and delta f is, is a fixed relationship. And so when a pulse has this relationship, we say it's, it's uh, Fourier transform limited. Um, it's possible to have this value be greater than 0.44. Tau is fixed and that means that delta f would be bigger. So Well, so you could have, for example, uh, an amplitude function right here that describes some pulse width tau. But if the underlying phase wasn't coherent the whole time, there were some phase jumps in there, then you would have some additional contribution to the frequency, to the Fourier transform that come from the fact. So we assumed that our Fourier transform was the Fourier transform of this convolved with a delta function. Right? If you don't have a delta function that you're convolving it with, then you smear out your, uh, that convolution smears out the Fourier transform of this. Okay? So if your underlying carrier wave is not a uh, single frequency, there's additional phase jumps that occur there. Uh, that phase doesn't remain coherent throughout the entire pulse. That would make delta F. Yeah. So, I mean, a very simple case is, uh, this isn't ultra fast, nor is it Gaussian, but, right, okay, so there was, there was a pulse of light, right? Um, but the light that was coming to you when the pulse was on was not a steady sinusoidal wave. It was incoherent. It had phase oscillations that were not, that did not remain, uh, did not have a fixed phase relationship over that entire time. Um, that becomes less of an issue. When you get the ultra-short pulses and you have shorter and shorter pulses, you have less opportunity for decoherence in that time. Okay, so um, 
in expressing spectral widths, it makes sense to express them in terms of frequency if we're relating it to time, because frequency is the transform variable of time. Um, but from a practical standpoint, it's often useful to talk about the wavelength, the spread in wavelengths of your pulse. So if you have a spread in frequencies of your pulse, that means there's a spread in wavelengths. Um, so how do we relate those? And so we can approximate the spread in wavelength just from um, the relationship that c equals lambda f. We can differentiate this. So if we differentiate both sides of this equation, c is a constant. And the right side, we take the chain rule. So, sorry? Product. Product rule. Thank you. Lambda df plus fd lambda. Right, and I can rearrange this to get d lambda over lambda is minus df over f. So that's, that's the form I like to remember this in um, because it's fairly symmetric. So if we have a spread of delta f, we can approximate delta lambda We only care about the absolute values. We can write the spread and wavelength like this. And if we're given delta f, uh, typically we talk about the center wavelength of, of lasers more than we talk about the center frequency. So we'll use this relationship up here to express the frequency in terms of wavelength. And we get a, a range of wavelengths that come from the range of frequencies. So let's see. Um, let's just do a quick example to get a, a sense of the order of magnitude. Um, silica glass fiber has a, a wavelength bandwidth of about 35 nanometers, over which there's very low absorption. In the range where erbium-doped fiber amplifiers can work. So this would be absorption versus wavelength for fused silica. So this is fiber optics. So generally, if you want low absorption, you can operate in this wavelength range or this wavelength range. This wavelength range is nice because we have these, these repeaters that we can put in that will amplify the signal. So we generally want to work in this wavelength range. It's about 35 nanometers wide. Let's call it 40. So what is the associated frequency spread? of a pulse that has that range of wavelengths.
40 nanometers, 15, 50 nanometers. Did I forget to? I forgot to divide by fifteen fifty. Over fifteen fifty. Uh, yeah, but I wrote it oh. twice with different units for the sake of uh, canceling canceling units. something like ten to the twelve, ten to the thirteen hertz. Let's just say it's five times ten to the twelve hertz. I think that'll work. Is it thirteen? Okay, so 5 times 10 to the 12 hertz is 5 terahertz, right? That's 5,000 eh, 5, gigahertz. So what does that tell us about the ability of this optical fiber to transmit information? Pretty good. Something on the order of 5,000 gigabits per second. Um, which, I mean, we know that fibers transmit lots of information. That's probably about the right ballpark. Um, and that's just using that uh, relationship between wavelength spread and frequency spread. OK, so um, when we talk about frequencies of a laser pulse, we don't have just a single frequency. We have a spread in frequencies. But oftentimes, we talk about either the central frequency, or it can be useful to talk about the instantaneous frequency. Um, for example, these pulses here are drawn with not just a modulated amplitude, but if you look at the, the frequency of the underlying wave, it's getting higher on this upchirped pulse. And this one, it's getting lower. So this is an example of a pulse that would not be transform limited. It's not just a uniform uh, sinusoidal wave underneath. And it turns out these, these chirped pulses, these are called chirped pulses because if you listen to a, a bird chirping or a chirp, it's a, in audio frequency range, it's a increasing pitch pulse. Um, okay, so 
These are used extensively in ultrafast optics for reasons that we'll get to in just a minute. Um, but we can talk about the center frequency, and that's going to come from taking the Fourier transform of this and looking where the center of that transform is. And it's, you can kind of imagine it's the average frequency that we see here, somewhere in the middle. Um, or we can talk about the instantaneous frequency. So the instantaneous frequency is what I'm referring to when I say the frequency is increasing or the frequency is decreasing. So we plot the instantaneous frequency. We'd expect it to be increasing or decreasing or doing whatever our eyes are telling us that the spacing of these cycles is doing. But uh, that kind of is contradictory to what we mean by frequency. Frequency is the... Yeah. Um, well, if we think about the frequency spectrum as being the transform of the temporal response, then we don't have, we can't really measure that instantaneously. We have to take a long duration of time, long enough that we can take the Fourier transform of it. Okay, so we need a way to define what we mean by instantaneous frequency, at least for the reason of keeping us sane. So, um, you know, normally we talk about the angular frequency, 2 pi f, as being the, the term that comes in front of the time in a sinusoidal wave. So omega is the time rate of change of the phase. And so we can just define the instantaneous frequency as the time rate of change of the phase divided by 2 pi evaluated at you know, time t. Okay, and that takes care of that, that issue. So the time rate of change of the phase, if I consider this oscillation, an increasing phase with, I guess, a parabolic increase, then the time rate of that, time rate of change of that is a linear increase. Okay, so a chirped pulse is one that has a linearly varying instantaneous frequency. So these are used for a lot of reasons, um, one of which is to avoid damaging optics in ultrafast experiments. Okay, so one of the reasons you would want an ultrafast laser pulse is that if you have a fixed amount of energy that you can get out of your system per second, certain amount of power, that's going to come from the amount of power you put in. Right? So you have a limitation on how much power you can extract. If you want to do electro-optics with it, there's a good chance you want very high peak intensities in order to get reasonable conversion efficiencies. So high peak intensities means you have to take whatever power you have, and if you can't turn the power up, you need to be able to compress it into smaller and smaller time windows. So if you can extract the same amount of power in a shorter time frame, you're going to get a larger peak intensity. Um, and that's why a lot of electro-optic devices are pulsed. And it turns out that the little green laser pointers that you can get used to be, all, the ones I had seen up until about two years ago were all pulsed. And this one, I, this looks really bright over there. Um, I assumed this one was pulsed when I bought it until I did the following test. You shake it really fast, you see a continuous line. 
some of the old ones, when you shake it, you just see a dotted line. You can see the pulses. It's not ultra fast. It's, it's uh, just a slower rep rate. I don't know whether it's that there's been a fundamental design change or just the brand that I've, just by coincidence, the brands that I've seen. Um, okay, so compressing pulses to short time frames with the same amount of energy gives you uh, more efficient nonlinear interactions. So as you compress to shorter and shorter time frames, you get higher and higher peak powers. Eventually, you run into a problem in that you get to a power limit where you're damaging your optics. Um, that's one issue that can happen. Another is unintentional nonlinear interactions, like the air that the light is propagating through can have nonlinear effects at high enough power. And generally, that's probably not what you want. You probably want to get your light through the air to your target. Um, so you may have other limitations uh, that constrain how much peak intensity you can have. So one thing you can do is you can stretch out, you can, if you have a very short laser pulse and you, need to, you want to amplify it um, to get as much peak power as possible, you can amplify it to the point where it's damaging your optics. And at that point, you can't increase the peak power without damaging your optics, but you can increase the energy stored in the pulse by spreading it out. When you spread it out, you decrease the peak power. You then amplify that back up to the damage threshold, and then you compress it so that it's now above the damage threshold. You do that, that's the last step you do. You don't have any optics that you go through after that point. And then you've got your high peak power pulse that you can go in and illuminate your deuterium and <coughs> cause spontaneous fusion or whatever you're going to do with your pulse. So I mentioned that because this slide is from Lawrence Livermore Lab. They do this there. Okay, so the idea is this. You have a short pulse, um, and there are reasons why you may start with a short pulse. Um, so we'll see in a moment the ways of generating ultra-fast pulses um, give rise to some particular sources that are inherently short pulse sources. So it makes sense to start with one of those. And when you put it through what we call a stretcher, it's called a stretcher because it stretches out this pulse temporarily, then this, uh, this pulse gets reduced in peak amplitude and stretched out in duration. And it's shown here with this pulse, with this chirp on it. So the frequency is varying as a function of time. That's indicated by the color. That's one of the effects that the pulse stretcher has, that this particular implementation of a pulse stretcher has. The idea is that this goes through your optics, and then you compress it back. And so the pulse stretcher that's used in this example, and this is, I think that's drawn backwards, but neglect that. Blame Livermore, not me. Um, a grating will diffract light at an angle based on its wavelength. And so your input pulse, which contains many frequency components and therefore many wavelength components, when it diffracts, its spectral width gets turned into some angular width. And so it gets spread out over this second grating. And this second grating is designed, um, so it's the angle of incidence at the second grating is equal and opposite that at the first grating. So it's just going to undo, if you like, the uh, the angular deviation caused by the first 
grating. So it steers the light then uh, by diffraction into the rest of your experiment. And if you follow the geometric path of what's drawn here as the blue ray, that's shorter than the red ray. Okay, it, it cuts the bag no more. And as a result, it travels shorter distance, it gets advanced. So the blue part of the pulse in this, in this diagram gets advanced relative to the red part of the pulse. So this would be our leading edge, this would be our trailing edge. And in the process, it gets spread out. So that pulse is spread out. It goes through this amplifier. This amplifier, this amplifier. You get the idea. Pulse is amplified. And then it goes to the compressor and gets focused onto your target. So the compressor is the same thing, but in reverse. So it's the same geometry, just reverse orientation. So now the... Um, the spread out pulse gets recompressed. You'll notice in the diagram that we've got these optics here that the pulse goes through. Uh, this is a better diagram for the, to show this. But after the compressor, all we have is reflective optics. There's no material that the light goes through. So this is a concave mirror to focus the light, not a lens. Because going through the lens would probably damage the lens. So they're like cavities, right? No, these are not. These, these are like the, uh, the lasing material in a laser, a laser oscillator. And if you take the cavity away, then it won't spontaneously create its own uh, its own output beam, but it will still amplify a beam that's passing through. So, how do I, how do I get two passing and five passing on this? Oh, so there's some not shown, some uh, multi passing, just geometrical bouncing the light back and forth. Okay, so um, there are limits to how short a pulse you can make and have it still effective at increasing the uh, efficiency of your, your nonlinear interactions. So we've already seen this, that there's always something that limits the efficiency at which you can generate nonlinear interaction. There was the uh, phase mismatch causing coherence length beyond which you don't get efficient frequency conversion. You can solve the coherence length issue by phase matching. And we saw in one of our homeworks that then the problem you run into is you're operating at some arbitrary, not arbitrary, but some specific angle of incidence and propagation through the crystal that is not necessarily one of the principal axes. So you get walk-off, spatial walk-off of the beams. And when they walk off of each other and they're no longer overlapping, you don't get frequency conversion. So you can get the same thing with temporal walk-off, which is if you have a very short pulse width or a very short uh, pulse length, then it has different frequency components. Those frequency components will, due to dispersion, travel at different speeds through your nonlinear crystal. And as they travel at different speeds, they eventually 
walk off of each other temporarily. So one frequency component gets ahead of the other. And this isn't, this isn't intended to be the two different um, frequencies that you're phase matching. These are two different frequency components of the same pulse. So like our OPO in our experiment, or our OPO in our homework today, um, we had a pump wave. If that pump wave were compressed into a pulse and you spread it through, that pulse would get smeared out and spread out. And I've just sort of drawn pictorially what a, uh, you know, two different wavelength components would do. And of course, you have all the wavelengths in between, so it actually just gets smeared out. But we say once that the sort of the two edges of the, the two uh, extreme wavelength components of the pulse, once they spread out by more than the pulse width, then they're not overlapping. If they're not overlapping, then you no longer have a you no longer have the opportunity for the interaction to occur. Okay, so we call that length the temporal walk-off length. So it depends on the pulse width. The longer the pulse width, the longer it takes the, the pulse to drift out of phase. And it depends on the um, group velocity mismatch. Call it delta beta. So the phase of the underlying electric field needs to be matched to the phase of the fields that are generated by the nonlinear interaction. That's phase matching. But here it's the envelope that's walking off. Okay, so that envelope, uh, that envelope needs to be matched. And so you have a coherence length that comes from the phase matching. You also have a walk-off length that comes from the group velocity matching. So phase matching is phase velocity matching. Walk-off is group velocity matching. You generally can't, it, it, the problem's over-constrained. You can't find an angle or a temperature or whatever. There's really no general way to tune uh, an arbitrary crystal such that you can have both of these effects compensated for. So as a result, you'll have some coherence length, you'll have some walk-off length, and whichever is less is the one that's going to limit your interaction length. Okay. So that's a little bit about, um, about the pulses themselves. We can talk shortly about how to generate the pulses. We'll see that there's... Um, some examples of mode lock lasers, those are sort of the fastest, shortest pulsed lasers, laser sources available. And there's reasons why ultra-short pulses are sort of a natural, uh, a natural output for these types of, of lasers. And that's why we start with an ultra-fast pulse before we amplify it in the, with the with this, uh, stretcher and compressor. Okay, so the simplest form of a pulse laser is you pulse your pump and that affects the uh, you only get laser output when you're putting energy in essentially the idea so your pump may be like a flash lamp much like a flash bulb so when that's flashing um, you get your pump going up your inversion building up 
And once it reaches the necessary inversion for lasing, your laser turns on. As your laser turns on, it's carrying away energy. So the excess energy in the pump goes into the laser output. And then once the pump dies away, your laser output starts to steal energy away from the inversion until the inversion dies away. And then the laser turns off. Okay, so that's not so interesting because we generally can't pump, can't modulate our pumps that fast. Um, so Q-switching is another technique that's used to uh, produce short pulse length pulses, typically on the order of 10 nanoseconds or so. The Q-switch lasers are pretty common for nonlinear optics. Um, they're fast enough. The pulses are fast enough that you can get high intensity and efficient nonlinear interaction, but not so fast that you need to go to heroic le lengths to avoid uh, damaging optics and breaking, breaking down air and such. Um, so the idea is that you pump energy into your laser material, and instead of continuously extracting it, you arrange for it all to be extracted sort of in a, in a short time frame. Um, Sort of an example of this is like, uh, I always like the example of uh, water pumps instead of laser optical pumps. If you are pumping water up, let's say, uh, up in the air, you have a hose, you're shooting it up in the air, you can just allow that to fall back down and you'll get a steady flow of water onto your garden or whatever. But if you have like a barrel up there and you can, you can prevent the water from falling down into your garden, instead you fill up the barrel, you wait till it's full, then you dump it over. And when you dump it, it all comes shooting out. You get much larger intensity over a much shorter period of time. And that's essentially what goes on in Q-switching. And the barrel is our Q-switch, the quality switch. Put in something into the laser cavity that shuts off the laser. It's like putting the bucket up there. It prevents the stream of water from falling down into the garden. Um, so you shut off the laser. The energy doesn't have anywhere to go. It builds up inside of the laser material. And then you have to be able to turn that off very rapidly. So one way you could imagine doing that is having a rotating mirror or some mechanical shutter that opens and closes in the laser cavity. So when it's closed, you don't have any lasing output. You let the power build up in the material, you open it, and you get a, a shot of light coming out. Uh, that's slow because it has inertia. So a much faster way is to use an electro-optic shutter. So we've seen how we can make switches out of electro-optics, apply a voltage to this crystal, you change, say, the polarization state of the output light so that you can either re redirect it out of the cavity, that's essentially a shutter, blocking the light from circulating, or not, in which case it passes through. You can use an acousto-optic device for that as well. And this plot just shows um, how power builds up in the cavity as a function of time. And the losses are turned on and off. So they're rapidly turned on and off by changing the, the state of the switch. And when the buildup power is high enough and then the losses are turned down below the, the power buildup, then you get a very large spike of output extracting that energy and the system resets. over that. And 
sort of the technique that generates, let me put it this way, the laser source that generates the fastest laser pulses is called a mode-locked laser source. And the idea here is that in a single frequency laser, our material, our lasing material, has some range of frequencies over which it can produce gain. And our cavity mirrors define some frequency which can resonate in the cavity. And if there's only one frequency that can resonate in the cavity that's within that gain region, that's the frequency that will oscillate. That's called a single frequency laser. Um, and you tend to get nice CW uh, sinusoidal output from that because you have a single frequency. The Fourier transform of that is a sine wave. If your cavity length is long enough that the spacing of the modes it can support, so the frequency spacing of the modes is C over 2L. So if the cavity length is long enough that that spacing is short enough that you can get lots of modes underneath this gain profile, then you'll likely get many modes oscillating at the same time. Each one has a phase that's independent of its neighbors. And so when they add up, um, they produce sort of a random variation in the output amplitude. So this is called multimode operation. It's oftentimes less desirable than single mode operation because your output is noisier. So if you're interested in low noise experiments, that's a bad thing. But if you can arrange for the phase of all of these to have a, a fixed relationship, you can have what we call mode locking, lock all those modes together, then you can get the Fourier transform of this not to be some random noise function, but to be a very short pulse. Okay, and so that's what's done um, in mode-locked lasers. So a picture of what happens, we can understand this a little bit better uh, if we think about the sideband picture of light. And I think we talked about this at some point with uh, modulators. But if we have an oscillating wave of frequency omega naught, we'll call that our carrier wave. And then we modulate that such that the phase has some sinusoidal variation to it. So omega m is the modulation frequency, and m we call the modulation depth. It's the amount that the phase changes. Then mathematically, we can write this expression sine of omega naught t plus m sine omega mt. Sine of something plus sine, um, well, sine a plus b, we can write as the product of sines and cosines, like so. And that allows us to separate out these two components. And then sine of m sine omega t, this has a Bessel function expansion. Likewise, the cosine of a sine has a Bessel function expansion. So those Bessel function expansions are written here. And the result is that this wave gets produces a component that's shifted by some uh, modulation frequency. And we call that a sideband. 
So the wave produces sidebands on the light. I think this is the picture that I showed before, the animation that I showed before that show two sidebands whose phase is changing in opposite directions relative to our carrier. Okay, so the carrier itself might have its phase changing at some optical frequency. One of these sidebands rotates a little faster, one a little slower. So in the reference frame of the carrier, um, depending on the relative phase of these sidebands, if they're in phase at the same time that they're in phase with the carrier, they're going to change the amplitude of the carrier. That's amplitude modulation. And if they're in phase at a time when they're 90 degrees out of phase of the carrier, we get phase modulation. Okay, so what all this has to do with mode locking is you can put a modulator inside of a laser cavity. And if you think about a single photon that starts the laser, uh, the laser operation, as it goes through, um, it builds up and it, the, laser, the amplification by stimulated emission of radiation causes that single photon to build up and a cascade of photons gets produced and this amplified uh, avalanche of photons eventually leaks out as your laser output. But after every round trip, if the light at the uh, carrier frequency gets sidebands put on it by your modulator that's inside the cavity, then after the next round trip, those sidebands get sidebands put on them. After another round trip, those sidebands get sidebands put on them. And the phase of each of these sidebands, there's a fixed phase relationship between them because they, they came from the same, they all started from the same light. Um, and what you end up with after you go through this cavity enough times is essentially a forest of sidebands, all equally spaced in frequency. And this is what your output looks like. And if you ask, what's the Fourier transform of this? Um, it's a sync function. So it has some temporal width to it. And that sync function repeats at a frequency given by the spacing. So what you have is repetitive pulses. Um, one way of saying that is that there are times where all these pulses, all these uh, fields add up in phase, and that's your pulse. And at other times, they all add up with random phases and cancel each other out. And then if you wait long enough until they're all in phase again, you get your next pulse. So that's the sort of uh, frequency domain picture. The time domain picture um, is that your modulator in here is sort of like a switch. Your cavity is only resonant when the round trip path is an integer multiple of wavelengths. So if you have a phase modulator and you're changing the phase, then you're changing the effective round trip path length. So only when the phase is a certain value will this round trip path length be an integer multiple of your, your nominal wavelength. Okay, so as you modulate that, you can think of this as just like a switch turning the cavity on and off. Well, the only way a circulating field can build up is if it passes through this switch only when the switch is on. So at whatever time this uh, phase, the, the phase modulator of this that forms this switch is at the desired phase, the light that leaks through then can resonate because the next time it comes around, 
it will be in phase again. That assumes that the frequency of phase modulation equals 1 over the round trip time in the cavity. And so you can think about this little pulse is propagating. It passes through the switch each time if the round trip path equals the switching period of the, the round trip time equals the switching period of the switch. Um, and so you just get very short pulses that exist when the switch is on. The rest of the time you get no output. And this pulse bouncing back and forth, each time it hits the mirror, a little bit of it leaks out. And since it hits that mirror once every round trip time, you get a train of repeating pulses. So it's the same, same mechanism, just a different picture. Um, and we already talked about another way to mode lock a laser, and that's passive mode locking using a care lens. So I drew this on the board a week or so ago, where you have uh, a nonlinear material with a third order nonlinearity that has an index of refraction that's a function of the incident intensity. And so we said if you had a Gaussian pulse, a, a, a Gaussian beam, a spatial profile that was Gaussian, that would turn this care material into a lens. And we calculated the focal length of that lens. So now we put a little aperture stop here, a shutter with a hole in it, that allows the focused light to get through, but blocks the unfocused light. It will only allow through light when that light is in a high intensity pulse. And that causes all the energy to get compressed into a short pulse. That's called passive mode locking. So unlike the active mode locking, there's nothing to, uh, to sync up or to uh, use to drive the mode locking. It just passively occurs. Um, so these ultra-fast, these mode lock lasers can give femtosecond pulses. So I mentioned uh, already a couple issues when you have such short pulses. One is the high instantaneous intensities can cause optical damage in glasses as well as in air. So typically in air, what happens is if any light gets focused, um, you'll see arcs. This is really common, even in Q-switch lasers. Uh, you know the laser's operating properly when you start to see little sparks in the air wherever there's a focus. So you generally try to avoid putting focus, avoid focusing your beam unless you're you know, trying to, to break down the air. Um, so a spark just from this random point in the air, does that make sense, like from air to air? So, well, it's... It's break. It's, it would be transverse. So, it, I guess it would probably be in the direction of the electric field. Although, typically, what you see is just a, a dot. You don't really. Uh, so you would have to be focused down to get light. Yeah. Well, well, wouldn't it be done though by the label itself? Because I'm trying to see a spark and a light. Oh, uh, off the most common. Oh, is infrared. Uh, so neodymium YAG is commonly used for Q-switch lasers. Um, so you <coughs> wouldn't see the infrared. Um, OK, so another issue is just the dispersion. Air itself is dispersive. It has an index of refraction that is, is wavelength dependent. So what starts as a very short pulse, when it goes through air, spreads out. 
When it goes through any material, it spreads out. All materials have dispersion. And the dispersion means the different frequency components of the pulse travel at different speeds. They travel at different speeds. Then they get stretched out, and you end up with a chirped pulse. So you either need to compensate that later on with a, with a uh, material that has a negative dispersion, or you need to avoid sending your, your light through material. So you can evacuate, uh, do everything in a vacuum. Um, and certainly, you can avoid materials with high dispersion. So if propagating through air is tolerable, propagating through glass may not be. So practically, what that means is that um, you may not be using, well, just go in order here. Um, to avoid damage, you need high quality optical materials that don't absorb much power. And that means things like uh, prisms and beam splitters which often have multiple optical elements glued together. Um, you can't have that glue. The glue is the most absorbing part of that optic, and it will get damaged first. And so you can have them with an air spacing instead. Okay, so when I say prisms glued together are a cube beam splitter, so you designed a cube beam splitter. But, um, basically two prisms. And they can be in optical contact or have glue or have an airspace, depending on how the manufacturer produces it. Um, you generally want to avoid transmissive optics when possible. So something like a prism that might be used to separate the different frequency components of light, uh, you'd be better off with a reflection grating, where the light doesn't have to go through glass. If you need to focus light, rather than using lenses, curved mirrors, work better. If you need to rotate the polarization of a beam, rather than having a wave plate where the light goes through it, you can physically rotate the entire beam using an, a periscope with an out-of-plane bounce. So those are some of the uh, differences in the optics that you choose, but there's also a difference in how you use the optics. Um, one of the common things you need to do with the beam is change its size. And a very common way to do that is with a mode matching telescope, something that looks like this. Problem, what is the problem with that in an ultra-fast situation? Well, there's multiple problems. One is you may have problems going through the glass. The other problem is you're focusing to a point, or essentially a point, and you'll break down the air there. So if you can do it, if you can tolerate having the glass, but not the breakdown there. You can produce the same results with the diverging lens. Um, Plano convex lenses should be used backwards. This is kind of interesting. That uh, if you have, say, diverging light and you want to collimate it using a plano convex lens, plano convex lenses are chosen because they're um, cheaper to manufacture than what we call a best form lens. A best form lens is one that has minimum aberrations, but it has to be curved on both sides and has a different curvature on the two sides. Um, so a plano convex lens is a pretty close approximation to that, and it's easier to, to machine a plane surface than a curved surface. Um, so normally you'd operate it like this, um, where the light 
on the side that's diverging hits the planar surface, and on the side that's collimated is on the curved surface. That gives you uh, less aberration than if you reversed it. Okay, so as a rule of thumb, you always operate that way. Uh, what's the problem with operating that way with ultra-fast optics? Any? It's not going to depend on the uh, amount of material because it should be roughly the same. Yeah, it's close enough. Okay. Either way. So this is this is backwards. This is forwards. Typical use. So the issue here is that um, you get unintended reflections off of these surfaces. So usually a small amount. These are typically AR coded at a particular wavelength. Ultra-fast optics, you've got a, long, a large range of wavelengths. So this AR coding may not be as good because of the, you're not able to match it. But the result is that uh, this curved surface over here has a back reflection that gets focused. And so that back reflection can break down the air. Whereas this one has a spread out back reflection, so it doesn't get focused. So you don't have the same problem. So you can see examples of uh, some of this theory when you go out and try to buy an optic. Um, this is CVI. They make sort of standard op research-grade optics. Um, if you look up the beam splitters that they sell, for instance, they list different types. Uh, an attenuator beam splitter that absorbs one polarization a plate beam splitter, a cube beam splitter. So we investigated those two geometries in our homework. High energy cube beam splitter. And that's, okay, so that's the one that I've shown in the inset. And it says optically contacted. That means these two prisms are not glued together. There's no, no glue structure in between. It's just a, an optical contact. They're polished, ultra smooth, and then touched in them the silica bonds are allowed to connect between the, well, the two sides. They glued. It's a glued, but that's, that's not a feature. It just is cheaper to do it that way. So rather than saying it's glued, what it would say is $200, whereas this one might be you know, $400. So yeah, they don't explicitly tell you these, but they do label it. This is high energy, so they try to make it, you know, give you some sense. I'm working with high energy. I want to go to uh, to this design, and then they'll they'll quote some damage threshold. This is five joules per centimeter squared. So notice that they're listing an energy per unit area. So that's no matter how short your pulse. If there's a certain amount of energy you're depositing, 
um, this would be sort of the uh, the slow, if you like, uh, damage caused by depositing that energy, and then they give an instantaneous power. Um, this is also expressed in terms of typical parameters for a Q-switch laser, and this is a CW laser. Um, just for comparison, I didn't put this up, but these other beam splitters, uh, a cube beam splitter might be a factor of 10 better than that, or worse than that, I guess. Um, so it's not that this change buys you sort of infinite ability to ramp up the power, but it does help. That's tau, the pulse width, 20 nanoseconds. So what this is saying is, it's saying for a 20 nanosecond pulse, which is typical for a Q-switch laser, pulsed at 20 hertz, 20 pulses a second, um, this is the pulse energy that can be tolerated. Now it's not exactly clear whether pulsing this slower allows you to go to higher energy. Um, they're not explicitly stating that. I suspect this is just what they tested at. Um, and that changing that rep rate doesn't change much. Now, that being said, can you look at 20 hertz? Can you say whether that's Q-switched or mode-locked? What, what determines the repetition rate in a Q-switch laser? Your shutter, right. how fast you turn it on and off. Uh, and that could be 20, 20 hertz. You could certainly turn a shutter on and off. An electro-optic shutter, you could turn on much faster than that. In a mode-locked laser, what determines the repetition rate, the round trip, right? You have just a single pulse circulating. Every time it hits your mirror, part of it leaks out. So in a mode-locked laser, uh, your pulse repetition rate is always going to be much higher than that, right? For any physical length of laser, a foot per nanosecond is the speed of light, so you know, a one-foot laser is going to give you a round trip of uh, two nanoseconds, so something on the order of 100, 500 megahertz. So this is not a mode lock laser. So it's not clear. If, if you were able to generate five joule per centimeter squared pulses in a mode lock laser, uh, would you still be below this damage threshold? Um, it's not clear. You'd be putting a lot more energy in because you're putting the same amount of energy per pulse, but you're dumping the pulses in uh, a million times faster. Um, so they haven't spec that out. <coughs> okay, so a um, couple comments on how you detect short pulses. Generally, photo detectors have some time response that's slow compared to what we consider ultra-fast pulses. We saw examples of this when we talked about um, the RC filter. Well, actually we didn't. We saw from modulators that the internal impedance of uh, an electro-optic modulator limited the speed at which you could drive it at. And that was when we had to put the, the uh, you had a whole homework on that. Putting a tank circuit around it allowed you to, to tweak that response time. Same thing with photodetectors. Photodetectors have internal 
uh, impedance. They have capacitance and they have resistance. Therefore, they have a response time. And so pulses that are faster than the response time don't get registered as faster pulses on a, the, the time series data coming out of a detector. So you need to convert. If you want to measure the shape of this ultra-fast pulse, you can't just put it into a detector and observe the uh, changing voltage coming out of that detector. You need to convert it into something else you can measure. One thing you can do is, uh, is use what's called a streak camera, where you convert this temporal pulse into a streak on a piece of film or a phosphorescent screen. And you do that by applying a time-varying electric field here and having a, uh, a photoelectric material here where the pulse hits this and electrons get excited off of the material. So you turn this optical pulse into a pulse of electrons. And at this point, this is a TV. Or no, this is an, this is an old TV. This is a CRT. You have a pulse of electrons. You have a scanning voltage that steers the electrons uh, as a function of time. And so you have a scan line going across. And the amplitude of the, the pulse determines the density of these electrons, which determines the uh, intensity of fluorescence you see on that phosphorescent screen. So really, this is a TV. You just have your cathode being bombarded by a, an optical pulse. So you can now convert this temporal distance into a spatial distance. And you have to know the, uh, the gradient, the time gradient, or the derivative of the, uh, the electric field that it's crossing. Uh, what's more interesting, I think, for this class is the autocorrelator. This is probably the more common tool used for measuring duration of ultrafast pulses. It doesn't do it as directly, but it uses nonlinear optics in a way that's kind of cool. You have your ultrafast pulse coming from, I'll call this the laser, um, and you split it in two. I'm trying to think of where I got this picture. I don't think I drew this, but it's drawn back. It's drawn incorrectly. This beam splitter is drawn the wrong angle. It should be drawn like that. Splits the light into a Michelson interferometer. The light goes to mirror M1 and M2. One of these mirrors can be scanned back and forth. And as it's scanned, it can be made so that this length is equal to that length. Okay, So we start where both lengths are equal. Then the pulse gets split in two and then gets recombined. But if the path lengths aren't equal because you've moved one of the mirrors, uh, we can imagine the two pulses having traveled a different distance and they get delayed relative to each other. Okay, so if you can delay those pulses by a distance that's greater than the pulse length, then instead of having one high intensity pulse, you have two lower intensity pulses coming into your detector. So now what you do is instead of detecting these pulses directly, you pass them through some nonlinear material, uh, maybe produce second harmonic generation, and then you filter out the original wavelength of light and just look at the second harmonic in your detector. And the reason you do this is because the efficiency of second harmonic generation uh, depends on the intensity. It actually depends on the intensity squared. 
So as this separation grows, the peak intensity decreases. And the intensity of one times the intensity of the other pulse is your intensity squared. And they're shifted by time, this is unfortunate notation, they're shifted by time tau, which here isn't the pulse length, it's the delay between the pulses. So the autocorrelation function is the time average value of that intensity squared. That's what your detector sees. The intensity arrives so rapidly that the detector just takes it all and it can't follow it as a function of time, but it just takes a total intensity and spits out a voltage, essentially. So we have to integrate over the entire time of the pulse. And because we have two pulses that are shifted by tau, we, uh, we integrate over the product of the two. And you can see that as, um, well, so that this, this is a mathematical correlation. This is a correlation of I of t with itself. So um, as you scan this, what you're doing is you're taking your two pulses and you're overlapping them and you're integrating them. And that's always going to be a maximum when they overlap. And then when they're completely separate, it will be 0. And so you're, you can recover from your autocorrelation function what your pulse shape is. And this requires a couple things. Um, it requires your pulse be repetitive. Because as one pulse comes, it sees, essentially, it, it sees a fixed position for mirror 1 here. And you get one data point, the autocorrelation for a particular value of tau. And as you scan your mirror, more and more pulses come in. And each one sees a different value of tau. So you, for successive pulses, trace out this autocorrelation function. So assuming all pulses are uh, equally, have equal length, then you can uh, trace out the autocorrelation function. And here is what the autocorrelation function looks like for uh, a few different pulse shapes. So let's see. Um, the autocorrelation signal is called S here. That's what's being plotted. I think this plot actually has an error in it, which makes me wonder why I still have it in my slides. Um, for A, a Fourier limited Gaussian pulse produces an autocorrelation that looks kind of Gaussian. A rectangular pulse. A rectangular, yeah, see this, I think what happened is this plot down here is supposed to be the pulse shape, and this is supposed to be the autocorrelation. I think it was drawn incorrectly where there are just two copies of the same thing. Um, what would the autocorrelation of a square pulse be? It's sort of triangular, yeah. It's sort of be triangular, uh, potentially with a flat top. Um, It should, yeah, it should be always trying, yeah. The flat top is if it was a different, if two different right now, I'm not going to do it. Yeah, then you have a, yeah. But this is autocorrelated, right. so they're always the same. 
Um, okay, so the, the point here is that what you see is your autocorrelation function tells you about the pulse width if you know the pulse shape. It tells you a little bit about the pulse shape, but it's not directly measuring the pulse profile. You need to assume knowledge of the shape um, in order to extract uh, a width. So for specific shapes, rectangular, Gaussian, some of the common pulse shapes you'd expect to have, you can infer the pulse width. But if we look at a pulse, you know, something like this that has some structure to it, we can't really back out uh, that temporal uh, waveform. Okay, so anyhow, we've gone way past time, so I'm sorry for that. We'll end and uh, pick up with new material next time. Your homework is the uh, practice test, so I'll post that. And how long do you want to work on the practice test before I make the solutions available? Do you want to have it until the last day of class, or do you want it to do next Monday so that you have a chance to look at them? Okay. <laughs>